0: On today's episode, we are going to talk about designing harm reduction. I'm Ban Ku, the host of Design Lab, a podcast that explores the intersection of design and health. Today's guest is Dr. Kimberly Su. She is an assistant professor of medicine at Yale University School of Medicine. Formerly, she was the medical director of the National Harm Reduction Coalition in New York City. It's an organization that strives to improve the health and well-being of people who use drugs. Currently, she serves as an attending physician providing primary care to patients receiving methadone and other substance use treatment services, and she supervises fellows and trainees with the Yale Addiction Medicine Fellowship Programme. Kim is board certified both in internal medicine and addiction medicine. She trained at Harvard's MD-PhD social science program and has a PhD in social cultural anthropology in addition to having a medical degree. Kim has a book called Getting Wrecked, Women, Incarceration, and the American Opioid Crisis that was published in 2019. It's based upon her research on women with opioid use disorder in Massachusetts prisons and jails support the design lab podcast you can do this in three ways you can follow us on spotify and apple podcasts give us five stars and leave us a review and go to our website designlabpod.com there you can find show notes from each week learn more about the guests and get related content from each episode and there's a link to sign up for our amazing newsletter I get show notes and links right into your email inbox. Every week, our producer, Rob Puglisi, gives his reflections on each podcast. They're awesome. You'll be reminded each week when a new episode drops. Now, here's my conversation with Dr. Kimberly Su. Dr. Kim Su, welcome to Design Lab. I am thrilled to have you on the show.
1: Thank you so much for having me
0: you are a double doctor. Not only are you a physician, but you also have a PhD in anthropology. And I was curious to know how this impacts the type of physician that you are.
1: Yes, it is really unique. There are tens, maybe a hundred of us out there or more. Wow! It's a very long training path, but I was always interested in not just medicine diagnosis treatment but Mm -hmm. the conditions under which wellness or suffering sort of emerged and anthropology was a way to think about that think about cultures think about different ways that people think about the body think about you know different traditions where you grow up and what your access to resources are and what you've seen in your family influences your health and well-being and you know how people think about food or how think people think even holistically about spirituality and mm. how all those things impact well-being not even just health but just your ability to thrive and i was always fascinated by this cuz i grew up in a lot of different parts of the country mm. and i felt like i was always an outsider looking in and that's sort of how anthropology as a discipline exists and so when I got to college I was like wow you could like study this this is incredible and I was just fascinated and and really thus did a phd
0: yeah that, I always felt like an outsider looking into because my family moved around a lot by the time I was in the ninth grade it was like my ninth different school so I was mm-hmm. always a new kid so
1: mm-hmm. I should have
0: became an anthropologist you should
1: have I think you should have it's it's really a a wonderful literature of thinking about difference and, and as well as similarity. Yeah, and why why things are the way they are. And I had been thinking about those things for a long time.
0: Now, did you go to medical school first, and then do your PhD in anthropology, or was it like intertwined?
1: Was intertwined on purpose? I, it was part of the Harvard Social Science MD PhD program. So I did three years of medical school and then a PhD in the middle, Mm. and I finished one more year of medical school at the end. And that was actually done on purpose so that I could think a little bit about the culture of medicine, Mm. the exposure to the third year of medical school, which some of your listeners may know is very intense where you're first time in the hospital, you're wide-eyed, you're doing all these different rotations, you've never been in a hospital or a clinic before, And so I really did want to understand how that can be its own culture, with its own language, with its own conventions, and then go off and do my PhD so I could think about those ideas, having had those experiences.
0: Mm -hmm. And where in the journey did you decide to enter into the field of addiction medicine? And for those listeners who don't know what that is, what is addiction medicine?
1: Yeah, I think I started to think about addiction very early, but never really considered it a viable specialty, so to speak, until late, much later in life. Mm. I had spent a lot of time in college with HIV activists and mm. really at the knee of people in ACT UP, at the knee of people in Health Gap, which is another nonprofit that works for global health justice. And in doing that was working with a lot of people who'd experienced incarceration, as well as people who had substance use and substance use issues. And I began to think about my own privilege, as well as think about these complex, gnarly problems. And so I realized when I got much you know, later into medical school, definitely through my PhD, that addiction medicine, which is this field where... You take care of people with substance use disorders where you work on preventing it, harm reduction, treatment, Mm -hmm. and providing people holistic care and achieving their own goals in terms of their substance use, ensuring it's not problematic, it's not having disturbances in their lives or their relationships. And I realized that I loved it because every single person and their relationship to their substances is different. You have to really understand... Where they come from, their biography, their genetic makeup, mm-hmm. how they were raised, why they do what they do. And it's sort of like everyone I don't want to use the word like snowflake, but everyone is unique and everyone's yeah. story was fascinating. And it's not really just about the medicines, it's really about understanding everyone's story, which is so different. Yeah. And I could sit with someone and talk with them for an hour, two hours and it's different every time. Mm.
0: And I could see how you're training it as an anthropologist. It just was a perfect fit for it, right?
1: It's a perfect fit is a perfect fit. And I think one thing that people like about working with me as doctor or as a researcher, an anthropologist, or an advocate is that systems level thinking, but also the microcosm and being able mm. to toggle in and out between someone's lived experience of their world as well as how does this affect public policy for all everyone or across the globe and how do we toggle in and out and having that lens the anthropological lens and theories and frameworks allows me to think about structural violence social suffering and as well as take care of people
0: let's talk about how the system needs to be redesigned to meet the needs of people with substance use disorder you are the medical director of a great organization called National Harm Reduction Coalition. Mm-hmm. And what is harm reduction strategy?
1: That's my favorite topic. Yeah. <laughs> I'm no longer at a harm reduction coalition, National Harm Reduction Coalition, but I love it and I will I will tell you all about it. So harm reduction is a philosophy as well as a practice that was really developed in the 80s and 90s, by people who use drugs, people who do sex work, in collaboration with people in the community and public health and medicine, Mm -hmm. that basically says that abstinence is not required of people at all, nor should it be the condition under which we strive for. Mm -hmm. And really to respect the dignity and well-being of people who use drugs, taking a compassionate, person-centered approach where we work with people to eliminate the harms that they have of their substance use and understand why they use and even the benefits that they may derive from substance use. Mm. So harm reduction is really a key to a more compassionate drug policy and a safer and better world for people who use drugs, which is so many of us.
0: Yeah. So this is not part of the war on drugs this is the
1: antidote to the war on drugs so this is the balm the war on drugs many people have said is a failure there was recently a trial where everyone was like i don't believe in the war on drugs you know they couldn't get jurors on it on because basically people are so disillusioned by the quote-unquote war on drugs that we've had in the us at least for 50 years and we've imported all over the world like the Mm. philippines many places Russia, you know, many places.
0: Really? So we've been exporting this Mm -hmm. terrible policy across the world?
1: A terrible policy where people are killed for using methamphetamine, where people are, you know, imprisoned, incarcerated or killed for, you know, using substances really has been a part of like our U.S. colonialist legacy.
0: And if anyone knows why these policies do not work why they're not a good public health strategy you do you wrote a book called getting wrecked that came out in 2019 where you followed women battling addiction as they went into the prison system in Massachusetts right
1: right so i followed women with substance use disorders as they went into prison or jail particularly with opioid use which we can talk about as a, you know one of our huge yeah crises of public health in this country, especially with fentanyl currently. Mm. And we have over 108,000 deaths in the last 12 months. COVID has its only gotten worse and worse. It, it's it got, had, yeah, it
0: got worse in COVID. Yeah, it, it was much worse. Yeah. I mean, this data has shown that, but my own personal experience working in the Philadelphia emergency room, I've seen it gotten worse,
1: much worse, much worse. And And so I I was very interested in this question of we incarcerate people in the U.S. for doing drugs. We say it's illegal. We say it's criminal. We say you're wrong. It's immoral. It's bad. And you deserve to be punished. So the health-based approach would say let me treat you, let me work on your poverty, let me work on your human rights, let me work on the conditions, your trauma, let me work on the things, you know, without sending you to prison or jail, which is very expensive and has a lot of collateral consequences. You can't live in public housing, you can't get da-da-da, you you know, after you get out, you know, there's so many complications of the mark of a criminal record. And So I followed people in and out. And I also compared it to people who just got treatment in the community. And really, I explore how prisons and jails really further traumatize people and actually put people out in a position that's often worse than they began. Really claiming to do treatment, but using abstinence-based only policies, using policies that are really punitive and don't actually help the conditions under which people live when they're released, you know, Mm. and they say, okay, I'm gonna try to keep you away from drugs in this place. And we know drugs get into prisons and jails all the time, because people are dying of overdoses inside all the time. Mm. So they're not even effective at actually keeping drugs out of these places. In fact, they cause a lot of harm.
0: Mm.
1: And then they say, you know, You know, they don't actually change where you live, what your, you know, your ability, your relationship to your family, all of the things like that people should be able to access in their own communities Mm. where they live. And rather than go 200 miles away to a facility that that doesn't actually meet their needs.
0: How did you collect these stories? What was that process like? And how did you establish trust with the women?
1: Yeah, so it took a long time. You know, working with people who are incarcerated has special federal protections. I specifically went into Massachusetts women's prison at Framingham and one of the in the Boston jail, which is known as Suffolk House of Corrections. And you just have to really lay bare what you're interested in and continue to interview, get life histories. Also, meet people where they're at. I would, you know, drive to wherever they were. I would meet them on their on their own terms, in their own spaces. I wouldn't ask them to come meet me in the research office. And also I would advocate for them. I was mm. not like a passive researcher. Wow. I showed up one day with one of the people in the book whose name is Lydia. And by very fact of me showing up at court, they decided not to violate her probation and parole that day only because I was there and I was a Harvard affiliated researcher and medical student. And they were like, Lydia, we would have violated you to go to prison immediately. You've not shown up to court the last three times, but because you have this, you know, doctor person type here, we're going to let you go today. And so I advocated, I I printed out her records from the hospital. She had been hospitalized for necrotizing fasciitis and advocated for that. Which Very is a active.
0: terrible disease. Terrible. I mean, literally like a flesh eating disease that you could die. Yeah.
1: yeah. She had nine or 10 skin grafts related to the necrotizing fasciitis and was in a lot of pain terrible wound care was discharged homeless using chaotically heroin chaotically when i met up with her just to try to sort of manage the pain she had given been giving maybe like six tabs of hydromorphone and her tolerance is very high and she blew through that in like a day and was using to try to treat the pain and manage the wounds
0: the amount of deaths that we see from opioid use disorder and other substance use disorders we're probably the worst on the planet, right? The U.S. in terms of all of the the deaths and harm caused by our policies. And how do we get into this mess? And are there other countries that do it better than us in terms of their policies that stand out in your mind?
1: Yeah, I would say that we got into this mess because this country has a very puritanical Origin substance use has always been associated with being wrong, being morally corrupt, being mm. bad. Historically, women have particularly had higher to fall than male counterparts. They were punished for double the period of time. If a man might go to prison for a year, women would go for two or four years for the same thing, like drinking. So we've had this very puritanical origin story that is very. Two faced in many hypocritical mm. because we all are using some kind of substance to feel better.
0: Sure. To go yeah. Get
1: productivity, to get sleep, to ease pain. These are all the human condition. Like we've grown substances to achieve intoxication as long as the human society has existed. Yeah. We've always found ways to. Get intoxicated, get wasted. You know, our, many people probably died trying many substances and plants and smoking things and taking, mm. you know, the, the different kinds of ways that we use substances to achieve spirituality, to get sleep, rest, pain. All of these things are very part of the human condition. Yeah. And yet we have criminalized them in the US and we criminalize certain substances and not others. Mm. And arguably, one might say, That alcohol leads to one of the most prevalent harms our society faces, right? A
0: hundred, a hundred percent. I see it every time I work in in the emergency room where no one gets like high and goes and gets a gun or a knife and stabs (laughs) or shoots someone, right? But (laughs) when I see someone getting shot or stabbed, alcohol is almost always involved.
1: Always. And you could arguably make... An argument that alcohol's harms on individual organ systems. I could point to alcohol related dementia, alcohol gastritis, alcohol neuropathy, cirrhosis. It's terrible. You know, every organ system can't increase rates of, you know, esophageal and stomach cancers, colon cancer. You can point to so many organ systems that are. Poisoned by alcohol, for example, illicit substance. Mm-hmm. And I'm not necessarily saying that we should criminalize alcohol, but I'm saying that other countries regulate and standardize substances. Other countries don't incarcerate people for using substances and take a public health and health based approach. And the most famous example of that is Portugal, which in the early 2000s, Decided they were going to take a harm reduction approach, that they weren't going to criminalize substance use, people who use substances that are problematic, which many people use substances that are not problematic. That's that's most people, you know, use substances that don't register either on medical or, you know, legal, legal areas. And for those people that did, they would go in front of a committee. I mean, they would have options to get treatment, to get services, to increase help and assistance, and really resorting very infrequently to incarceration.
0: And that's worked in Portugal.
1: I mean, it it has worked in Portugal. And I think it's also increasing access to what their people need and and what people who use drugs say they need and do need. And Mm. we are innovating in the laboratories of democracy here in the US. So Oregon, for example, is they have measure 110, which was on the ballot, which allowed them to decriminalize some substance use, and instead put a lot of that money into treatment, into harm reduction, into housing, and a lot of the things that people said that they needed, not Mm -hmm. incarceration. So that is actually having a dramatic effect. It's even decreasing the rates of, you know, young black men who get arrested for marijuana or cannabis, mm. which is like really incredible because yeah. those are very racist structurally yeah. harmful systems.
0: How do we destigmatize substance use disorder? I mean, even working in the hospital,
1: mm-hmm.
0: there's a frustration that I see among healthcare staff. You know, we call these patients addicts and we get frustrated because of a lot of times I'll leave against medical advice when we're trying to admit them for IV antibiotics to treat their cellulitis and they cycle in and out of the system. And I see stigmatizing this population.
1: Yes. So you're hundred percent right. I think that there is a strong need to, we we say, move away from like the A words, addict, abuse, abuser, alcoholic, words that are dehumanizing, person. I use people who use drugs, you know, and language matters. We know there's a study where people use the word abuse in the charts of master students, and they at the end of the chart, they'd say, "Oh, this person deserves to be punished, not treated." So we know that the chart lore matters. So that's wow. an easy thing, like off yeah. the off the bat, like the language needs to be neutral and yeah. clinically appropriate. Substance abuse is not in the DSM. Substance abuse disorder, poly substance abuse. That's not a thing. PSA, yeah. when someone consults me for that, I'm like, that to me says prostate specific antigen. Like that yeah. is not a, an entity. Yeah.
0: And you're not just trying to be PC about it. I'm not it, trying right? to be it, pedantic it, this... or
1: PC because it really matters. Yeah. you know. And I work with so many people who use drugs who are like, I got called a dirty junkie. I got called an addict. I got called these things. I'm going to rather die than go back to you. Wow like, you know, I'd rather die of this necrotizing fascist. I'd rather die of this abscess in this than go to you. Mm -hmm. We actually very much embody cops in the hospital. We police our patients, you know, Mm -hmm. many people on our team, including ourselves, often everyone in our team sort of has this inner cop where we're like, you you lied to me. I would lie to you too, if like you Uh weren't going to give me medication and so yeah. I think treating pain aggressively is one thing. Mm-hmm. I think understanding the trauma, that people who use drugs report in going to the hospital. I've had patients where we have to orchestrate this exact specific thing where I'm on call, I will come down to the ED, I will be there, I will receive them, I will mediate with the ED attending, and I will do everything I can to try to get them up to a bed. Wow. And But you can't control, like, all that stigma from everyone or, yeah. you, can't, you know, I can't ameliorate every single look that the guard or the front desk or so-and-so does or the way that they got needled, you know, 50 times because they couldn't get a line or yeah. all these things, right? So it's very, very hard for me to convince people to come in when they could be dying and need emergency care. Or they need hospital level care and it goes very badly. So I do think like showing stories of how people recover Yeah, think is really important in telling, and I bring patients to grand rounds and stuff. Whoa,
0: you do? Yeah, yeah, that's so cool. Yeah,
1: and really, I brought a patient who I met who was homeless in the needle exchange in the Bronx, and she was sleeping on the four, five, six line. And you know, she we started her on buprenorphine. She got housing. You know, she really like. Was able to go visit her family and make it was like incredible, right? So people need to hear that people do get better, Mm. and that you know they're worthy. And so we we as a society need we need some of that goodness because we see so much of harms and we can be very jaded.
0: Yeah, I mean there is this importance of storytelling in medicine to share some of the stories of these patients who aren't like the typical cases that we normally see and that there is some hope because I think a lot of healthcare staff get frustrated and they don't see a way out.
1: Pull over and I got out and I like took a picture with... Oh, I think I saw that it it was on Instagram,
0: right? Yeah, on Instagram because
1: I'm like... I love it when we like show that people recover. There was like a really good ad in New York City with methadone and buprenorphine, where they're like, "Methadone saved my life. Buprenorphine saved my life. Like yeah. I don't have a job now. I like able to, you know, not be thinking about getting fentanyl or heroin every four yeah. hours, and I can just chill. And you know, so I love those.
0: Can you explain what buprenorphine is for those who do not know who's listening?
1: Yeah, buprenorphine and methadone are medications that are highly effective for treating opioid use disorder, and they are opioid agonist therapy, or OAT. Sometimes we call it, and they they're long acting opioids. Methadone is a full agonist, and buprenorphine is a partial agonist. And really, they decrease your chance of overdose and death by half. I mean, they are hugely effective substances that are much stigmatized. But with the long half-life, people stop needing to use as much throughout the day. So with fentanyl and heroin, people might be using two to you know upwards of ten times a day, constantly cycles of withdrawal that our brain is and our bodies go through, and, and seeking the drug out. And buprenorphine and methadone level off those feelings and treat the cravings, and and people do really well.
0: I imagine this work of addiction medicine can be challenging at times and sets you up to be criticized or there's hurdles. Can you talk about some of those challenges?
1: Yeah, it's a hot button issue now. I think there is a lot of education that we need in healthcare but also in society generally. Yeah. I think people agree that it's a common good, but I do get a lot of criticism about, you know, the medications that we use. I think We get a lot of criticism about our approaches. We get told that people should hit, quote unquote, rock bottom. We get told that people should go to jail, that people should rot in jail, that people deserve what they've done to themselves, that people don't deserve to be given naloxone over and over, that people, you know, we get told all of these things. So we're constantly.
0: How does that not get you so angry all the time? (laughs) I'm very
1: angry. I'm very (laughs) angry. (laughs) Um, you seem but I so do...
0: calm and collected. <laughs> but I, yeah,
1: you know, it's a lot of yoga. I mean, it's a <laughs> lot of meditation. You know, it is It is a, like a Sisyphean task, really. I mean, we are up against a lot of forces that not only like don't care, but are actually, you know, quite quite harmful so i do really try to put out good energy you know and energy that people you can do it there's a lot of cheerleading that needs to go on for patients for ourselves like addiction medicine we see a lot of trauma we deal with people dying in their 20s 30s 40s yeah that is highly abnormal that is tragic my mentor paul farmer would call these like stupid deaths you know like Mm. deaths of poverty every overdose death we say is preventable yeah Mm. and really we have this lazarus medication naloxone that literally you've given it many times in Philadelphia in the emergency room and literally brings people back from the dead you know they are not breathing enough they are not breathing at all and we have this medication if people had access to it, if people had access to community and to people that could give it to them and an ample supply of what they need or medication, no one should die of an overdose.
0: Yeah. We were talking before we started recording about your family background. They've been here multi-generations, but you're Chinese American. And I'm curious to know what are their thoughts of you being an addiction medicine specialist—that surprised them, and did it go? Why are you getting an MD, PhD?
1: Yes, yes, I am a, a multiple generation Chinese American, and really have you know, it's been hard to explain to my family why I've been interested in harm reduction, in being an addiction medicine doctor. At a certain point, I sat down with my mom, and I just told her I was like this is what fascinates me and I don't care at all about the heart you know I don't care at all about going yeah. into these prestigious specialties she been, um, you should
0: have you should have been a cardiologist yeah been,
1: uh, <laughs> da, 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 da. and I was like look I went to Harvard is that not good enough for
0: you,
1: <laughs> so, you know I, at a certain point I was like captain of my own ship you know and I was I went to South Africa to do research on HIV and Wow. And reproductive healthcare, and you know, I just was told them. I'm like, this is what I'm going to do with my life, and it's my calling, and I need to do it. And I hope you respect my decisions, and I hope you see that I'll be able to make a, a living and a path for myself. And it was really funny because my mom, my mom was talking to her old childhood friend who lives in San Francisco, and uh... that person got a um got a new primary care doctor. And she's like, oh, that, her new primary care doctor also said she did addiction. And she said, does she know you? And she said, oh, she knows you, you're famous. Or <laughs> you know, like, I don't know. It's I think now she's at a place, like my, my parents are at, and my family are at a place of like understanding. They understand that there's not enough people doing yeah. this work and that it is my calling and it is me and, and the way they've raised me that also allowed me to step into this space.
0: That's so cool. One question that I love to ask our guests is if there was a listener to come visit you, where would you take them out to eat?
1: Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So if you come to New Haven, I don't currently live anymore, but New Haven is where I work at, at Yale and New Haven is famous for pizza. Yeah. So every time I'm on service on the addiction consult service, I'll buy the team a different kind of New Haven pizza. And, you know, there's a whole formula about the water and the crust and how much char. And it's really, really flavorful dough compared to New York pizza, where I went to school in New York. You know, so I'm very biased towards New York style, you know, thin crust, like, you know, pizzas. New Haven has a much chewier, tastier, arguably, crust and dough. And it gets a little charred. And so there's a huge camp. There's camps. There's Pepe's Camps, there's Pepe's, Salis, yeah, there's Modern, and there's many other, you know, subsets of those, and they they are particularly famous for like a tomato pizza or a clam pizza. Clam.
0: I've had that clam pizza, so good. Do you have uh, a favorite?
1: There's also a mashed potato pizza at Bar with a mashed potato pizza at Bar with bacon and mashed potatoes. It's really good. So every time I'm eating, I'm like, it's a fresh experience. I'm like, oh, clams at Pepe's. There's actually like a gorgonzola pizza at Pepe's. That's really good. Sally's has a really good tomato pizza. I'm like, I don't have no favorite. But every time I'm on service, the team wants something different. And I'm like, okay. And then like it's a fresh new experience. But I I actually am a huge convert of New Haven pizza. I would take New Haven pizza over New York pizza.
0: Wow, that's saying many, a lot.
1: Yeah, given like the choice, you know, of your average sort of pizza. Yeah. It's I, much more flavorful. Definitely your listeners, if they're in New Haven, should try it.
0: All right, cool. We'll put a link to those restaurants. And if people want to support and help out, how can they do that? What's the best way?
1: I would say there's a couple ways. One is look up and see if you have a syringe service program or a needle exchange in your area and see if they need volunteering, Mm. see if they need supplies, see if they need people to stock kits, see if there's any services that you could give them and supporting even there's one that ships by a mail called nextdistro.org. And so if you don't have one, they can ship it to you and you can support them. You can check out all the stuff on Harm Reduction Coalition's website. You could donate to the overdose prevention centers. We have two above ground ones in New York City that are at risk of losing state and federal funding called On Point. Mm. So there's so many ways that you can be involved you know, trading services, mutual aid, building community, donating, all of those things are are wonderful.
0: Awesome. And we'll put a link to all those sites in the show notes. And I have a thousand more questions, but I want to be sensitive to your time. I know you're extremely busy, but thank you so much, Kim, for coming on the show, for teaching me, for your advocacy. I'm such a huge fan.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: Follow Dr. Kimberly Sue on Twitter and Instagram. Her handle is D-R-K-I-M-S-U-E. And reach out to me on Twitter at B-O-N-K-U on Instagram at D-R-B-O-N-K-U. Design Lab is produced by Rob Puglisi, editing by Fernando Carrios. Our theme music was created by Emmanuel Houston and the cover design by Eden Liu. See you next
1: week.